It was years ago, we made multiple trips with our youth ministry to Mexico, and while there, building relationship with the young people in the streets, on the dirt soccer pitches, if you will, I suppose they call it football, we learned a few lessons. Well, first of all, that maybe we're not as good as soccer players as we thought we were, but... On one occasion, we were playing on this dirt pitch. You would call it a field, but in soccer, they call it a pitch. But it was just pure dirt. There was no grass. There were also no lines, which we learned that it seemed like a good thing that there was no out of bounds until there was some squabbling going on back and forth between the teams because all of a sudden now, people are dribbling around just spectators on the sidelines and and then scoring goals and and using them kind of as a defensive kind of body blocking kind of strategy and all of a sudden there happened to lots of arguing and of course we decided quickly that that wasn't a good idea to play soccer any longer and we moved to a totally different activity and you could say without lines somehow soccer would be better it would give a lot more freedom you could go wherever you wanted with the ball with no negative consequences, but that wasn't the case. This kind of thinking is kind of summed up in one quote that I saw this week, and that is this, freedom knows no limits. If it's limited, it should not be called freedom. But the truth is, soccer without lines and limits, if you will, where you could kick the ball wherever you want, it wasn't fun. That kind of freedom didn't actually lead to enjoyment or joy. And so we quit that game altogether. What our students learned that day is this second quote by Terry Pratchett, which is this, freedom without limits, or freedom without limits is just a word. In other words, there are limits within freedom. What if I told you that there is a brand of freedom going around in our culture that leads to slavery? Jeff Bethke says this, we are chasing freedom, yet becoming slaves. My guess is that this is because we have a wrong elementary view of freedom. True freedom has inherent restraint, boundaries, Bumpers and limits. But limits is, the, is a 21st century swear word. So as we're looking at rhythms, we're really looking at the freedom and our rhythms connecting. And so in order to do this this morning, we've got to look at this word called habit. Do you know about this? Habits? There's good habits and bad habits. I'm not talking about the things that nuns wear. That's a habit. I'm talking about repeated behaviors that somehow move toward what we love. Charles Duhigg in his book, The Power of Habit, writes, When a habit is formed, the brain stops fully participating in decision making. It's actually a good thing in that it frees up brain, like, space and capacity to be able to do other things. And so as you create a habit, for instance, if you're 
If you're a driver, sometimes you can drive a place and you go, how did I get here? Right? It's because your brain just completely put that in a different part of your brain and freed you up to think about all sorts of things, sing the songs on the radio, talk hands-free on your phone, things like that. Philosopher James K.A. Smith, he wrote a book called You Are What You Love, The Spiritual Practice of Habit. He says that the habits that, that we play out day after day are not tangential or not, not just somewhat kind of connected to worship, but are actually central to it. So as I talk about rhythms and habits this morning, I'm really talking about what you find in your first place in your heart, what you worship. Many would say we become our habits. So let's start with a habit. This morning, let's start with a bad habit, a conditioned response. Maybe that's, that says this. Even when I sense everything in my life is getting out of control, even when my life is scattered or busy, I must re resist any rules. That would re restrict technology use, my work schedules, my pleasure, my comfort, my weekends. This idea that as soon as things get weird, no, I can't be re restrained at all. So there's a, a wrong belief or a lie underneath this. Let's take a look at the lie. Put it on a slide for you. The wrong belief that this is built on is to limit myself is to restrict my freedom. It's my freedom. And I'm not fully human without my freedom of choice in every moment. Because the good life comes from choosing what you want, when you want, whenever you want. That's why we have credit cards. We don't save our money for things. We just charge it. We decide that we want what we want, when we want it, and we're free. And then we pin it on Jesus and say, Jesus died to set us free. If the son set us free, we are free indeed. I'm going to charge it. Credit cards aren't evil. Debt's not great, however. The American brand of freedom goes so far past where the writers of our Constitution were thinking. And when it gets to that place, I look at it as just a total rejection of authority. No one gets to tell me what to do. I can do whatever I want, whenever I want to. I'm an adult. I don't act like it, but I'm an adult. And it contains this idea. Yeah, God might not say it's like, that's a good idea and there's consequences, but somehow I'm going to be the exception to the rule. I'm going to do this and I'm not going to suffer the consequences. I'm sure you've never thought like that. Justin Whitmull Early calls this a freedom liturgy. So liturgy is a pattern of words or actions repeatedly regular, repeated in a regular fashion as a way to worship. So a liturgy oftentimes in a more liturgical church is the things that they say, the thing when you stand up, when you sit down, when you pray, when you sing songs, when the priest or the pastor or the father comes up and gives a homily or a message or a sermon. He would say that our collection of habits is like our liturgy. It shows what we worship what we say is true, is, is important. What we deem is, is important. Here's what he says. 
The freedom liturgy is so dangerous because it perpetuates the slavery to all other habits. It doesn't actually produce freedom. We think by rejecting any limits on our habits, we remain free to choose. Actually, by barraging ourselves with so many choices, we get decision fatigued. So much so that we're unable to choose anything well. So when, when we're so exhausted mentally, because we've got millions of choices, we haven't limited ourselves at all, we're extremely susceptible to someone else making the decision for us. And because we turn our brains off when we get into habits, generally, that means that manipulative bosses, invisible smartphone programmers, controlling friends, family, or coworkers begin to set the agenda for your life. And you unwittingly, be, unwittingly become a slave in the midst of what you think is freedom. The other danger in this kind of thinking is that we can't see the good life fully for what it really is. Early goes on to say this. When we act out of the no limits, none ever, freedom liturgy, we assume that the good life comes from having the freedom to do whatever we want. So to ensure the good life, we have to ensure our ability to choose in each moment. What if the good life doesn't come from having the ability to do what we want when we want it, but from having the ability to do what we're made for, what we're created for? What if true freedom comes from choosing the right limitations, not avoiding all limitations? So the way I boil it down is this way. God's truth creates true freedom. Right limits create true freedom. So it is true that Jesus sets us free. But right limits create true freedom within that. That's what Jesus modeled. Peter Scazzaro, Scazzaro, it's hard, hard word to say. We find God's will for our lives in our limitations. Long intro for this continuing series that I'm calling Rhythms, Learning the Unforced Rhythms of Grace. I wanted to poke the bear as it relates to freedom and limits. Because I think as Americans, this is one area we massively struggle with. We step into an entitled mentality without realizing it and label it freedom and defend it to the end, thinking that somehow this kind of freedom leads us to true liberty when that kind of freedom really leads us to slavery. So I just want to show you where that's modeled in Jesus' life so that you don't just take my word for it. Spoiler alert, Jesus' example of laying down our, his rights and his freedom the way that we need to model that for the sake of love. So I'm going to challenge you also introduce you to the idea of a rule of life. This is something that a lot of monks and nuns have had over centuries and other spiritual leaders and try to figure out what that might look like for our life to stay on track as limits for life to the fullest. And lastly, one application point this morning, one tangible way we can begin to exercise some boundaries and limits in our physical life as well. All right, let's jump right in. Um, there is no 
one who surrendered more freedom than Jesus. No one who has ever lived or who will ever live. Jesus leaves heaven as the all-powerful second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he is born helpless as a baby in a stinky stable. He went from speaking the universe into existence in Genesis 1. By the way, that's not just God the Father. We learn from Colossians 1 and other, th- other places that it was not just one person of the Trinity, but all three parts of the Trinity speaking creation in Genesis. So he went from speaking the universe into existence in Genesis to not being able to speak a word. The Bible describes this decision uh, to emit, to limit or empty himself in Philippians 2. Take a look at this passage. Philippians 2, we'll start in verse 5. Your attitude, our attitude, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held onto, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Jesus becomes fully human. And not only does he become fully human, he becomes a poor human. He becomes a homeless human. He becomes a human who loved with so much power that he became a threat to those who were in authority at the time. And they tortured and killed him on a cross. And Jesus allowed them to put him to death. Jesus says, no one takes my life. I willingly lay it down. So he allows them to put him to death. The life giver of all things of the universe submits himself to an agonizing death on a Roman torture device called the cross. So why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus let go of all of his rights and his freedom and and the glory of heaven for love? For love. Because he loves you and he loves me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish have life forever. It was for love. By surrendering freedom, taking on limits and boundaries, it gave him the ability to love and us the right to become sons and daughters of God. Jesus does, have you ever thought about this? He's called the second Adam in the, in the New Testament. He does the exact opposite of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are first parents, if you will, in the, created in the garden. And Jesus is the limitless one. She, he chooses to live within the limits and boundaries for the sake of love. He was the omnipresent one before. He could be anywhere at all times. Now he is localized in a body, one place. He had all power. Now he lays his power aside. By the way, just a quick side note on that. I believe that Jesus laid all of his 
abilities and gifts as God aside, and he lived only by the power of the Holy Spirit in this life. Why? So that we could see that we could live the same kind of life as he did. He didn't have some S underneath his robe. He lived fully human. He was fully God, but he lived fully human. He was tempted in every way. That's what Hebrews says. So when you think about Jesus, think about him as one who walks the way we walk. Trusting the Holy Spirit to empower him to do all that wonderful stuff. By the way, that's why he tells us, you will do more and greater things than I did. Because it's the same Holy Spirit. So this is Jesus. Takes on limits and boundaries for the sake of love. Adam and Eve, tries, they try to become like God. That's limitless by taking the fruit and eating it. And in trying to free themselves from their own limitations, they brought the ultimate limitation of death into the world. You see how opposite those two things are? And when we try to live, with, live without limits, we play the role of God. So, Justin Early says this, the way to victory is through surrender. The way to freedom is through submission. If we're going to love others, we've got to learn how to live within limits and boundaries. Galatians 5 says this, you, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. So you're called to be free, but not through selfish ambition and for your own ability, serving your wants and needs whenever and however you want. The higher calling in freedom is to use your liberty to serve and love others. All love requires sacrifice. Sacrifice implies the use of boundaries and limits. To put you first. Some of you are like, I got this down. Oh, well then teach me because I don't got it down. These rhythms of grace that we're talking about are the boundaries and limits to help us love others. And this isn't a new idea. What if we were able to change the small things that we did about how we live and line them up better with the lifestyle of godly rhythms more and more. That's what this series is all about. And I think it's possible it starts with habits, which are repeated behaviors. Jeff Bethke says this about habits. Here's the peculiar truth. What forms our identities are million Tiny, micro-sized actions we do every day without realizing it or thinking twice about it. We are the sum of our habits. Habits are less about doing something. They are really actually more about loving something. What do I mean by that? Well, let me use an example of sleeping with your phone on the nightstand. Now, some of you do not have cell phones. God bless you. You're probably better for it. But for those of us, the rest of us who have cell phones, we put the cell phone right there next to our bed. We do not do this out of convenience like we say, oh, want to make sure that, you know, just want to see if somebody is going to call, might need to check the weather before I get out of bed. 
I need to check the news before I get out of bed. Don't do that, by the way. Um, oh, it's my alarm. That's, that's the big one. Yep. Most of us, however, put it there because we love what the phone gives us. It taps into much deeper longings for belonging, significance, staying connected to others for our entertainment, endless entertainment, so we don't ever risk being bored. Boredom is something for the past generations. Now we're entertaining ourselves to death. We don't want to miss out on anything. It's the FOMO. So access to our phone actually taps into the spigot of our desires, our drives, and loves. I'm not saying it's evil to have your phone next to your bed. I'm just pointing out the fact that there's a habit that happens, and it's more about love than it is about doing it. But it's convenient. I know. I do the same thing. I'm not blaming you. It's just an example. Let me define a couple words. Routine, habit, ritual. I know it feels like we're in the weeds. I promise we're not. Routine, repeated mundane behaviors. Example, tying your shoes, right? It's a routine. It's not about loving anything. Habit goes further than that. Habit are repeated actions that go deeper than routine because they tap into our desires, our drives, and our loves. And they're difficult to give up, whether they're good or bad. Because I am trying through this time of learning about rhythms, I'm trying to add in habits that are healthy and good. Whether it's flossing my teeth that I talked about, I don't know how many weeks ago, or listening to the Bible before I go to bed instead of playing my little computer iPad games, right? Those are habits I'm getting into. And the more that I do them, the more that they aren't just something I do, but they're something I look forward to. And that all of a sudden are beginning to change me. And Let me give you a a ritual. A ritual is a habit of meaning, a repeatable action that draws us potentially into a sacred moment. This would be like your time in the Bible. Or for me, my time listening to the Bible at night before I go to bed. It's opening myself up to a sacred moment. Sometimes for us, we do birthday parties. And when we do a birthday party, we'll stop and say, you know what? We need to honor this person. And we stop and we pray or pray blessings or speak blessings over that person. That's not just a habit any longer. It's become a habit of meaning. It's a ritual where we stop and we focus and we speak words and give life. Does that make sense? That's a sacred moment, but it's not just a habit. So since our lives are a collection of habits... What if we begin shifting our actions so we create good habits that lead us to love... That with our time could even be rituals that would create more sacred moments for us. Where have you seen this lived out, Andrew? Glad you asked. This is what these ancient monastic fathers, these desert mothers and fathers would do in creating for themselves repeated patterns of behaviors that shape their hearts toward godly living. You're like, wait, that's legalism. No, it's being intentional about growing. Intentional doesn't mean pharisaical. Intentional means you're working toward something becoming a repeated behavior. So usually, in this case, for these monks and nuns, and I'm not saying you have to go and do that, for them, it was a communal process. We're all going to pray at noon together, or we're all going to pray at the same time, but apart. 
but we're all doing this together. Right now, many of us are fasting for Lent. We're all doing it together. But I don't come to your house and say, how's it going on your fast? I just know I'm not alone. I'm doing this arm in arm with a whole bunch of people. So these desert fathers and mothers would do that. And they created what's called a rule of faith. So a rule of life, sorry. So a rule in this context is not like obeying the rules. It was more about finding purpose in the context of people. A family of monks, if you will. Shared experiences. So fathers like St. Augustine and St. Benedict both had a rule of life. St. Augustine's rule began this way. Before all things, most dear brothers, we must love God and after him our neighbor. For these are the principal commands which have been given to us. Then St. Benedict's rule starts that we've got to establish nothing harsh, nothing burdensome. And he goes on to describe walking out God's commandments as being an ineffable, that's a hard word to say, sweetness of love. Ineffable sweetness of love. This isn't just a bunch of rules. This is patterns that if we do this, we're going to love well. So both these men saw habits as the gears which with, with which the direct life moved toward the purpose of, of loving others. So this rule word, before you go off the rails, rule is actually comes from the Latin word, and the word is associated with a bar or a trellis, like woodwork that a plant would grow on. So it brings order from the chaos of the plant going all over the place. And it grows and it's more fruitful with structure. That's the purpose of this rule of life. That it would help us to have more structure to our lives so that we could be more fruitful. So what would a modern rule of life look like? Because we're not going back in time. Well, um, my friend Derek gave me this great book. It's an InterVarsity Press book. Uh, and I highly recommend it. It's called The Common Rule. Here's the website, thecommonrule.org. And um, Justin Early is the author. I've been quoting him a little today. And um, he has created a common rule um, that he lives by. Let me show it to you. In fact, you'll recognize a few of these things that I have been borrowing from for a few weeks. So he has daily habits and he has weekly habits. He has four daily habits, kneeling, prayer three times a day. For him, kneeling is important. So he's put it in his little rule of, of life. One meal with others. Why? Because he knows that he needs to have a relationship with others. And for him, he would be content maybe to not have any meals with anyone else. And that's important, that community and relationship. Three, one hour with his phone off. Some of you just had a heart attack. What do you mean? Turn my phone off for an hour. You can do it. You can just breathe through it. We'll help you. And four, scripture before phone. Scripture before phone. Go and see what God has to say through his word to you before you find out what's going on in the Ukraine or on Facebook or whatever. Because guess what? The first thing you do will orient your entire day. I would rather orient my day with who God is and who I am in his presence. And then go, okay, I'm going to bring that to now the news. Lord, help. Now all of a sudden I'm praying through the news instead of getting angry about it. Those are daily habits. He suggests a few weekly habits. On his list is one hour of conversation with a friend. Does that sound familiar? Hmm, I think we've been saying that for a few weeks. One hour with one friend once a week. 
Another weekly habit, curate media to four hours. Only four hours of media. Does that sound hard? For some of you, that's torture. Fast from something for 24 hours. You notice he says something, not food. It could be food or it could be something else. Why? Because sometimes we need to put limits on our life so that we learn how to love and live within limits and realize that those things don't master us. That if I don't play my little iPad game before I go to bed, the world will keep spinning and I'll realize I'm not dependent on that and I could let it go. Seems like a silly thing, but you put your own thing in that, in that category. And lastly, Sabbath. One day out of seven, you rest and you take time away. And you leave your phone in your other room and you hang out with God and you do things that you love and you enjoy creation and you eat your favorite foods and you're with your favorite people. So, yep, you're like me. You're looking at that list and you're going, yeah, I got that, okay, oh yeah, oh, I don't know about that one. You don't have to do this list. But what if you created your own rule of life with postures within it of slowing and silence and solitude and Sabbath, these key things we've been talking about? What rhythms would you put in to encourage community and relationship? What would you put into your rule of life? So I want to challenge you as you go away from today to think about what would be on my short list. You notice this is four daily things and four weekly things. By the way, this is all found as well as other information on his website, thecommonrule.org. I highly encourage you to take a look at it. He's even got some examples of how you could begin living this out. This has been incredibly helpful. Really thankful for him. Finally, I want to spend just the next few minutes as we close on a one way we can actually apply some of this boundaries and limits and rhythms in the same package, if you will. So let me tell you a story. Orison Sweat Marden was a writer in the late 1800s. He wrote 50 books and he ended up publishing a magazine called Success Magazine. That can tell you a little bit about where his mind was and what he wanted to promote. He was like the motivational speaker of his day. He might have been kind of like the first motivational speaker in the U.S. And he, he, one of his quotes is, Don't wait for extraordinary opportunities. Seize common occasions and make them great. Weak men wait for opportunities. Strong men make them. You can see this guy's like, he's a go-getter, right? So he's working on this particular project in the late 1800s. He sets out to discover and interview a giant of his day and ask, what is the secret behind all of this incredible impact you've had on the world and the success that you have? One of his first questions was about this man's untiring energy and phenomenal endurance. The man proudly answered that he had worked an average of 20 hours per day for 15 years. He was 47 years at the time, and yet if you added up all of his hours working, he would be 82. This man thought work and productivity were the most important thing in the world, and he made it one of his missions to kill off the thing that stood most in his way, sleep. He hated sleep. 
He even called it a leftover from caveman days. A wasteful holdover from history, he said. Who was this man who hated sleep, who was an obscene workaholic, almost certainly to the detriment of his own health? I'm not sure about that. It was the very person who made it his mission to create and invent things that would allow him to cheat the very thing he hated. His name is Thomas Edison, inventor of the light bulb. And in 1879, our culture and cultures around the world made the trade-off. It couldn't have understood, we couldn't have understood embracing this invention and what would it do to us because he did believe that it would take us back to the cave days if we didn't have this. He believed it would make us more intelligent. I wonder if this is where we get the funny cultural uh, symbol of a a light bulb over someone's head as having a great idea. We say if someone's smart, we call them bright. And Edison specifically said, this will make us smarter. But the truth is, it's been stealing our sleep for 143 years. Before this, people got, on average, 11 hours of sleep per night. But we've used it. We've all used it to cheat ourselves, take the limits off And be able to work longer and harder and stay awake longer. We've cheated ourselves out of the rest we've needed and the hustle to push past boundaries and limits in our life. Light bulbs are not evil. I just want to go on record. But as we create healthy, holy habits and godly rhythms and mature, we grow spiritually. There are physical health benefits to following Jesus' way of living life as well. And our pursuit of Jesus isn't just about our spiritual life. It's also about our physical bodies too. Our spiritual life and our physical life are connected. They cannot be removed from one another. The Apostle Paul is warning us to be careful about how we walk in our sexuality and eating habits when he says this. He says it twice, but I'll only quote it once from 1 Corinthians 6. He says, Do you not know that the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So what's just one way we can begin to honor God with our body in using boundaries and limits. Because this little light bulb thing has actually got us to a place where we're not very healthy in this one area of sleep. Wait, you're gonna talk to me about sleep at church? Yep. Why? Because when you begin to move into physical alignment with the way God created us to live, you will see spiritual benefit in the same way that I have been walking in these new rhythms, and my body is beginning to see physical benefit. I am sleeping better than I've been sleeping in a long time, except for last night when I knew I was going to be speaking about sleep. But more about that here in a minute. So just a, just a couple quick verses here. Mark 4, Jesus goes to sleep in the storm. Jesus is a champion sleeper. He's like a gold medal, medal napper. Why? Because he has incredible amounts of trust in God. Right? The higher your trust level is, the better your sleep is. 
Easier said than done, I know. But just need to be aware of that. He has such faith and trust in God. God's intention, however, is to give us deep sleep. I want to just show you a couple quick verses. We're going to go fast. Ready? We're going to, we're going to go fast, but we won't hurry. Psalm 4, verse 8. I will lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. He is our safe place. Proverbs 3, verses 24 through 26. This is in the context of trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding in every way. Acknowledge him. And he'll make your paths straight. What does it look like for your paths to be straight? Well, one of the ways is to go after his wisdom and his discernment. You, you're, you're, you're lacking wisdom? Just ask of God. He'll give it generously. And when you lie down, verse 24, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Have no fear of sudden disaster or the ruin that will overtake the wicked. For the Lord will be your confidence and keep your foot from being snared. And Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. You do it without God, it's not going to work out so well. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand at guard in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. That's you, Jesus, who left heaven to die on the cross. For why? Because he loves you. He grants sleep to those he loves. He's going to do his part. We've got to begin to do our part with boundaries and limits. So what rhythms have you created around your sleep? If you're sleeping well, you probably have some boundaries and limits. If you're not sleeping well, maybe not so much. I've been watching a master class with this guy named Matthew Walker. He wrote a book called Why We Sleep, and uh, he's at University of California at Berkeley. And um, just science with me for a second. The aim, science is very clear that we need seven to nine hours of sleep at night. Most of us don't get more than six on a regular basis. So if you're not sleeping, what does it do? Matthew Walker tells us a couple things. It affects our memory. When we go into deep sleep, our brain takes things in short-term memory and puts them into safe long-term memory. When we're not sleeping as much, we can't remember as many things. Oh, and by the way, studies have now correlated the lack of sleep with onset of Alzheimer's and dementia. The best thing that you can do to keep your brain working really well is probably not those little puzzles that they say you should do on your iPad, but to get your sleep. And I know as you get older, it's harder to get good sleep. But that's why these rhythms are even more important for you. Do you know that sleep loss actually affects your cardiovascular system? There is a, a worldwide study that happens twice a year with 1.6 billion people around the world, 70 countries. In the spring, what we see as we lose one hour of sleep, we spring forward. 24% increase in heart attacks, suicide, and traffic accidents. In the fall, when we gain one hour, we see a reduction by 21% of heart attacks, suicide, and traffic accidents. I don't know, I'm just saying. Your immune system, when you don't sleep, the critical cells, if you only get four, the, the critical cells for your immune system are diminished. 
By how much? 70%. Short sleep has been tied to cancer even. So the genes that are affected, one last sciencey nerd, and then I'll move on, I promise. Your genes are actually affected by your lack of sleep. So let's say you only sleep six hours a night. Okay, true confessions time. Who is that? Raise your hand. Yep. Statistics say it's about half of our population. I don't know. Maybe you guys are just up ahead of the curve. If you only sleep six hours of sleep at night versus eight hours... 711 of your genes are affected. Half of those decrease your immune function, and half increase. The ones that increase are for tumor promotion, inflammation, and cardiovascular disease. God created us to sleep. This is why Matthew Walker says sleep is not an option. It's a biological necessity. But how much are we affecting our spiritual life by not stewarding our bodies well? So as you think about healthy rhythms in this area, as you think about your rule of life, might you put something in about sleep? Now, there's all sorts of things that you can do to sleep better. All you have to do is Google it, and you'll get all of them. And you can find Matthew Walker. You can find YouTube videos, and you can watch him and see how important these things are. My lack of playing my iPad games, I've learned, actually... Because if you do that for one hour before you try to sleep, and I'm sure I'm not the only one who does this, you get 50% less melatonin production. And that melatonin production is delayed three hours. So if you want to be on Hawaii time, that's what you do. Make sure you look at your iPad for an hour before you go to bed. Blue light. So, some of you are like, yeah, I don't sleep so well. And you don't sleep so well because you've got You've got things going on in your life that you're, you're absolutely so upset about. You just, it's just impossible. If that's you, we want to, and you need us to pray with you. And you need to be making sure you get that one hour a week with one friend where you're processing your stuff. Or go to a counselor. We think healthy people go to counselors. That's what we think. But I just want to say, some of you aren't sleeping because there's stuff going on in your life and that's real and we want to walk with you and help you and pray for you and see you get breakthrough. I know some people got breakthrough as I prayed for it a couple weeks ago. Um, Some of you are having nightmares because you're letting the wrong information in and your brain is trying to purge that. But um, if you're having nightmares, you may need to look at some healing things, but you may also look at what are you watching? What are you reading? What are you taking in? And begin to evaluate that. Um, (laughs) I learned last night I've got a few fears that I didn't realize I had. Because during the middle of the night, they manifested. I dreamed that I was in college and I forgot to go to class. And I missed the final. And I was still living in my parents' house. I don't know how I moved in at 51. I moved back into my parents' house. (laughs) Sorry, mom and dad. Um, And so... I can learn about what's going on in my heart. And the Lord is actually gracious to reveal it to me. Andrew, you got some stuff you need to figure out. You feel out of control. You feel like you're going to miss something, right? What a gift! 
What a gift that God created our bodies like that, that he would speak to us in that way. By the way, the other thing that happens while we sleep is he sings over us. Zephaniah 3. And he, de- he delights over us. He, his goal, his love for you, he wants to move you into a place of deep sleep. So enough about sleeping. Before you fall asleep, why don't you stand? I just want to pray for you as we close. I want to challenge you. Think about how you think about freedom. That's the first part of the message. Think about a rule of life. What could that look like for you? Could there be a couple things that you put down on a sticky note that you begin living out to have some new rhythms? And lastly, I want to challenge you what your sleep like life looks like. Looks like you might need to come get prayer, which is a great segue. Prayer team, come on down. We want to pray for you. Jesus, thank you that you are the God of peace and that you will bring us to wholeness and freedom if we seek you. And so I pray and thank you that I get to live free. And yet, I don't live free like the rest of the world. I choose to receive your limits and your boundaries and your best. Thank you that you are good and that you don't withhold any good thing from us, but you help us understand when to say no to even good things so that we can have the best life. So thank you for your goodness over us. I bless this family in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for coming, everybody. We'll see you next week.